The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. At this time of year, uh, the Christmas movies start to come out. Am I right? How many of you have started to see those pop up on your Netflix um, news feeds and people are making their, you know, classic Christmas movie recommendations? Well, for me, Home Alone is one of those classic movies. If you haven't seen it, I suggest that you go home today and find out whatever streaming platform it's on and, and, and watch it because it's a, it is a Christmas classic. And I remember watching it as a young kid and then trying to go down the stairs of my house on a toboggan just like Kevin McAllister did. But in my case, ending with a goose egg on my forehead. Um, one of the reasons, though, why Home Alone is such a classic Christmas movie is because it plays with Christmas. You know, Christmas isn't a time to be alone. Christmas is a time to be together with family. We sing songs even that say this, you know, I'll be home for Christmas, you can count on me. And so Christmas is a time when we long to be home together, enjoying good food and, and family time and gifts and decorations and light and whatever Christmas traditions you're used to. It's happiness, it's joy, it's celebration, it's, it's peace, it's smiles. But just like our beloved Christmas songs and movies, there are often things that get in the way of the good home vibes and feelings. Perhaps you have an idea of what Christmas should look like and it doesn't meet those expectations. Perhaps you've experienced challenges with your family in the past and Christmas is a time when things actually flare up, can even get hostile. Conflict you've been avoiding often just comes up around the Christmas table. Or you have a wonderful time with your family and you always feel at home and you long for it, but it's also hard because your family is grieving a loss and Christmas is a time when that comes up again. Or for you, home has always been a broken and difficult place where you don't feel like you belong or fit or that you're loved. What we don't often like to admit is that even in the best of times, though, we find every one of us finds ourselves homesick at Christmas. At Christmas, we try through lots of different things to scratch an itch that remains deep inside of us that can't actually really be reached. The church father, St. Augustine, knew this homesick itch well, and it wasn't until he found a home in a relationship with Jesus that he was able to put it into words. And he writes in his greatest work, The Confessions, that our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. What Augustine is saying is that despite our best efforts, even in the best of times with all the right people around us and the traditions and the songs, we still find ourselves homesick longing, looking for our true home. And so this year as we move through Advent, we will explore this idea of home through the book of Isaiah. And here in this passage, Isaiah is speaking about our future home. He says, in the last days. And by doing this, Isaiah is telling Israel that even in the present moment, even in their their lives, they can begin to move into their future home. And he lays out the basic answer of how we can do this through this passage. 
He shares how we can live even now in the mess of our present moment, though things are not perfect, in the spirit of our true home. Isaiah tells us that experiencing this true home, living in our true home, takes a few things. He says it takes transformative worship, active discipleship, and following Christ's light. It takes transformative worship, it takes active discipleship, and following Christ's light. First, let's look at transformative worship. Finding our true home means we have to discover transformative worship. In verse 2, Isaiah writes down what he sees in a vision, and he says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Have you ever driven through the mountains before? Have you ever been captivated by the beauty uh, of the breathtaking mountains? Well, then you know that the most glorious, the most breathtaking, the most beautiful mountains are the ones that are the tallest. The ones that we have to crane our necks to look way up at the top. The tallest mountains are the ones that get our attention. We know this from how famous they are. Mount Kilimanjaro. Mount Everest, K2, we all know these names because these are the greatest, the tallest, the most glorious. This is probably why in the ancient world, the gods who were thought to be the most powerful, the most glorious, they were the ones who lived on the tallest mountains. Zeus lived on Mount Olympus, Baal on Mount Cassius. And Isaiah is saying here in this passage that the Temple Mount is the tallest mountain. That in the last days it will be established as the greatest. What he is saying is that God, not the other deities in the ancient world, God is the one who will ultimately come and rise above. Who will be established as the most glorious, the most worthy of our worship. And praise. But what's so important for us to know is that the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, the one where the God's temple was built, is actually not the tallest mountain in the area. Not even the tallest mountain in the region. Just outside Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives towers above the Temple Mount. And this solidifies for us the most important part here, that it isn't the mountain itself that makes God worthy of our worship. It's his being it's his character. It's his goodness. That's what makes him worthy of our worship. Our true home is where God is. As Paul says in Corinthians, I believe, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now, we live after the Holy Spirit has been gifted to us at Pentecost, where it was poured out from heaven. The presence of God came upon the apostles, and in us as well, as if we confess that Jesus is our Lord. We are filled with God's holy presence. We don't have to go to a mountain to find it. God lives with his people inside us because of the Spirit. But there are other things that we can learn from this mountain imagery. I don't know if you've ever driven through the mountains before. And uh, Emerson, you can pull up that first slide, the mountain slide. There we go. That's a picture of Mount Kilimanjaro. Power or influence over others. This is power idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm loved and respected by so-and-so. It's approval idolatry. 
Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have this kind of pleasure experience or a particular quality of life. That's comfort idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm able to get mastery over my life in the area of such and such. That's control idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if someone is there to protect me and keep me safe. That's dependence idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm being recognized for my accomplishments and I'm excelling in my work. That's achievement idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I have a certain level of financial wealth or freedom and very nice possessions. That's materialism idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if my children and or my parents are happy and happy with me. That's family idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if Mr. or Miss Wright is in love with me. It's relationship idolatry. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I'm hurting in a problem. Only then do I feel worthy of love or able to deal with guilt. That's suffering idolatry. Each of these poses challenges in our lives. These are all rival mountains that we have to recognize are at work in our lives. And through transformative worship, through reorienting ourselves to worshiping God, coming as the uh, Isaiah writes, right, going up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of Jacob, intentionally, is how we begin to deal with these idols in our lives. I wonder if this is, the the challenge of this is why Isaiah writes in verse 2 that the nations will stream to the mount of the Lord. You see, this goes against the laws of gravity. You know, it's pretty much common sense that streams go downhill, We have such beautiful waterfalls in Hamilton because of the power of gravity. It pulls the water down, down, and down. And yet here in this passage, Isaiah is saying that the nations stream up, up, up to the house of the Lord. This is what it means to go against the fabric of our being. It is natural for us to turn in on ourselves and to worship idols. It is unnatural for us to reorient ourselves towards God. John Calvin says this plainly when he says the human heart is a factory of idols. It's happening all the time. And so this takes work. This takes being intentional about worship to overcome this. Living in our true home takes nothing less than transformative worship because we, to, we need to be constantly streaming towards and up the mountain of God. This means giving your total devotion to God. Being, and this is a quote from our core values. We, as a church, commit ourselves to being transformed into a people, giving their total devotion to God to point to and demonstrate the good news of Scripture by our daily lives. It's transformative worship. 
Finding our home also takes active discipleship. In the entire middle part of this passage, the, the, the um, prophet is talking about instruction to God. The nations come to worship in order to listen to God, to receive teaching from him, and to walk in his way. What Isaiah is talking about is what some of us know of as the Ten Commandments. What Old Testament Jewish people would, would know as the Torah, the teaching, the instruction of God. This is what was given to Moses when uh, the nation of Israel was established on, on, uh, on Mount Sinai. But a question that comes up a lot in our, our modern culture is why? Why does God demand that we obey him and follow his instruction? Well, let me give you this example for a moment. Um, imagine that you were diagnosed with a condition that made it dangerous for you to eat certain foods. And so you go to a doctor's appointment and they give you, you know, the, the diagnosis and your doctor says to you, well, you can't eat X, Y, or Z. If you eat X, Y, or Z, it will be dangerous for your body. You will get sicker. You will start to break down. Well, if you think about it, you go home and then you actually eat foods X, Y, or Z. Is somebody going to knock on your front door and give you a fine? No. Are you going to, you know, all of a sudden collapse on the floor? Probably not. Instead, what would happen is it's this slow decay, this breakdown of your body. You will waste away. This is how the Bible describes God's law, God's instruction to us. God doesn't give us the Ten Commandments simply because he just wants us to obey him or do whatever crazy thing he asks. No, the law tells us the way that we were created, our nature. And how we flourish. The consequences of violating the law are natural. If you violate the doctor's orders, you're violating your own nature. And you're unraveling your own fabric. This is what God says in the law. It's all about how we were designed to live. But our modern culture says that we can't do this. We, instead, we must look inside ourselves. Decide what is right and wrong for ourselves. And live that out regardless of what other people say. This would be a little like a patient going to the doctor, getting advice, and completely ignoring it, saying, I'd like to live however I'd like to live. Which is their, yeah, they can do that if they want. A doctor is not going to force you to follow their directions in the same way that God isn't going to force us to follow his law. But there are consequences to those actions. If the Bible, what the Bible claims is true, that God created us, that he knit us together in our mother's womb. That we were fearfully and wonderfully made by him. That he knows us more intimately than, than we even know ourselves. Then wouldn't it be natural for us to follow in his direction? One example of this is the boundaries that God places on sex. For example, because it's, it's so dangerous for our bodies and souls to sleep around. Sex is such a powerful force that it can, God says, is designed for a covenant relationship and that only. Anything other than that is going against the natural way that we were created and will lead over, the, over time to the breakdown of our bodies. God 
is not just testing us, wanting us to obey the law. No, discipleship is about living more and more into the way that we were created to live. That is active discipleship. And finding our true home in God means we have to listen to that, be active in that. We are drawn to the law and we follow the law, not just because God says it, but because it's the way that we were made to live. God says, if you want to live in a relationship with me, if you want to experience the shalom of my presence, right? Notice the verses four through, uh, verse four, where the prophet talks about how swords will change into plow, um, plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, that nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. This is going, this is Eden imagery, the Garden of Eden imagery. It's, it's going back to the original shalom, peace, prosperity, presence that we were created to live in. It's what happens when we obey the law. Shalom flows from God into our lives. An active discipleship, taking seriously our spiritual growth, is what will cause more shalom in our world. For Israel, though, they couldn't do it. If you follow um, through this passage on into verse 6, you'll hear very pointed words at the nation of Israel. They broke God's law. They worshipped rival gods. And they were overtaken by rival nations. And I imagine that each one of us could look at our own lives and say, yeah, that's, that describes me too. I don't live up to God's standards. None of us do. We are constantly worshiping other things, placing, placing other things even above our relationship with God. And so where is the hope for us? Is there hope? down. Isaiah actually leaves the nation of Israel with great hope in verse 5. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Come, house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The hope that Isaiah is talking about comes years later. When describing that first Christmas, the Apostle John writes, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the light of the Lord. He is the one to whom Isaiah is talking about, pointing towards, hoping in. And in his life, death, and resurrection, he makes it possible for us to find our true home in God. He is the bridge. See, the light of the world shone into the darkness. But when Jesus died on the cross, darkness fell over the whole land. The light of the world descended into darkness in order to bring us into God's beautiful light. The promises of Christmas cannot be discerned unless you first admit that you cannot save yourself or even know yourself without the light 
of Jesus Christ's unmerited grace. Jesus is the key to this passage. We cannot find hope in it without him. This is how we find our true home in God. Our hearts will be restless until we find rest in the grace of Jesus Christ. The words of come thou long expected Jesus are perfect for us this morning and they actually lead us to the table. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. As we prepare our hearts for the table, I invite you to reflect deeply on this hymn as we sing it in a few moments together. Maybe there's something in your life, a rival mountain, an idol, something that you've been putting your hope and your trust in that can't actually give you what you need. And you need to confess it and repent of it and seek God. Maybe this is something that's been going on in your life for some time and you know it's getting in the way of finding true joy and happiness in Jesus. Maybe there's something in your life you're complacent towards in following God's law. Maybe your discipleship journey has stagnated, has felt stale. I invite you to confess that also to God and to seek ways that you can continue to grow in him. Follow him, become more like him. Maybe you've believed for far too long that you aren't good enough, that you're a moral failure and there's no hope. That God must be mad at you because of what you've done or because of who you are. May you know more and more this morning the love of Jesus. For we come to the table this morning not because any of us is strong, but because we're weak. Not because we're righteous, but because we're sinners. Not because we're self-sufficient, but because we know we need rescue. Jesus says to us, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares, to all who are weak and frail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, Jesus welcomes you into his circle, adopts you into his family, and reserves a place for you right here. Because he is the mighty friend of sinners. He is the ally of his enemies, the defender of the indefensible, and the justifier of those who have no excuses left. And that is good news. Let's pray. God, we are restless until we find rest in you. I pray that each of us this morning would find you, the light of the world, in a new way. That we would be challenged and renewed by your grace. I pray that as we sing, 
this next song, that you would prepare our hearts to come to the table. That we would repent of things that we need to repent of. That we would turn to you for the grace that we so desperately need. That we would be filled with hope. God, build us up as your church. That we may not just hold this good news to ourselves, but that that it may overflow. That it may overflow into our work, into our families, into our friendships, into our relationships, into our walks, and into our talks. In Jesus' name, amen.